Welcome back to Pushing the A. We're here with Chapter 31 from Scenic Belmont, Massachusetts. Sorry this is coming a little late. Junior year, as I imagine, has done to you, has gotten to me. And uh, Jim Gagney made Hell Week live up to its name. I'm burnt out. I'm sure you are too. We're here anyways on this beautiful Sunday night as we wait for Get Out to win Best Picture. Also hearing that Wyatt and Eduardo are planning to start their own podcast in this sphere, so to them I wish only the best of luck. Alright, let's get to it. So, Warren G. Harding, who is, uh, by the way, the book is like, describes him as a real hottie, a real, real baddie, um, is inaugurated in 1921. He is weak, he is bad at his job, he is bad at knowing when there is corruption, um... He lets the Ohio gang in his cabinet, and he cannot tell if any of them are ever lying to him. Not a great trait for a president. He has some smart guys in there. Charles Evans Hughes, who's going to be the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court later as the Secretary of State. Uh, Andrew Mellon as the Secretary of Treasury, and Herbie Hoover as Secretary of Commerce. Um, his Secretary of the Interior, Albert B. Fall, uh, is an anti-conservative, anti-conservative anti-conservatist um which is not an ideal position for the secretary of interior um harry daughtry is his attorney general who's a total crook industry generally uses him and his administration as a front um the order of mckinley where basically people ran free and did whatever the hell they wanted returns there's no reform says ferry uh economics gets some serious help their strategy is overall to help business make money interestingly uh the courts get more conservative he nominates four supreme supreme court justices all of whom are reactionaries including chief justice taft former president um and they typically vote against public opinion um progressive legislation has sort of been um happening for a little while in the days of TR and company, so child labor legislation and gains for labor itself. Um, Mueller versus Oregon, which is if you're a woman, you have special rights in the workplace. All those get huge hits, um, which leads to this overall gender debate. Um, if women are equal in terms of the vote, do they need special protection? Uh, then there's another Supreme Court case, which is Atkins versus Children's Hospital. Um, there's no special protection or minimum wage for women, um, in that ruling. Basically, because women have the vote, the Supreme Court says, um, if you're, if you have that, then we have no reason to actually protect you because you can basically protect yourself. Uh, the app is yelling at me, telling me to make my audio more short form and, which case I tell them it's been three minutes and 33 seconds so they can deal with it. Um, corporations are generally just going crazy during the time of Harding. Uh, antitrust stuff is just completely ignored. Railroad lovers are running the uh, ICC, an acronym which you need to know for the last test, but certainly not for this one. Um, industrialists are creating trade associations, so cement basically standardizes their product across... Uh, the board, um, and they standardize how to deal with labor. Um, Railroad basically does similar things. Uh, Hoover loves all this, and the whole 
underlying idea is just regulate yourselves. We trust you. We don't really need to have any competition. Um, so, as you may recall, there's been a major war in the last uh, decade or so. Uh, so the War Industrial Board is gone, as are most of the war controls. The railroads are reprivatized. Um, there are a lot of concerns with the privatization of the uh, railroad industries and other transport industries. So uh, the Ash Commons Transport Act of 1920 uh, basically privatizes the railroad. Um, the ICC basically moves to this role in which um, they're sort of saying, you know what, we're not really interested in what you're doing with your money or how you're spending it. We're going to let you run free. Just do whatever it is you need to do yourself. Um, because the underlying mantra is we need to save the railroads for the country. So, um, the federal government takes the same idea with the shipping industry, um, with the Merchant Marine Act of 1920. Uh, basically, the shipping board gives away for away boats uh, for really low prices. Um, foreign ships, though, still dominate over American ships because um, they can pay their men less and the ships are better. So they're just still dominating the shipping industry. The labor... Um, labor unions are generally struggling. In 1919, there's a steel strike that kills 12 people. Wages are generally going down um, by 12% is the average. Unions are struggling. There are fewer members. Veterans are really the only people getting gains in this time. So the Veterans Bureau um, is established. The American Legion, which is founded by Teddy Roosevelt Jr., lobbies for benefits and the money that veterans lost in the war. And Congress passes a bonus bill in 1922 to give these people some dinero that they might have lost while they were fighting a war. Um, technically, the United States is still at war with Germany heading into the 1920s. So in 1921, a joint resolution, meaning both the Senate and Congress, agreed to it. Uh, passes that the war is finally over, and it only took like three years longer than the war took. Um, isolation really reigns as the general doctrine of the time. So, the United States um, is sort of slowly getting a little more and more involved in the League of Nations as an unofficial observer. Um, they're also rivals with the British in the Middle East for a lot of oil that they desperately need to power their economy, as do the British. Um, the United States eventually does get drilling rights. The big issue of the time is, ironically, disarmament, uh, meaning everyone should not have weapons and be able to fight anymore. Harding is very pro this idea. Harding is very in favor of this idea. Um, businesses don't really want to pay for naval supplies anymore, and the Navy, if things keep going the way that they're going, um are going to end up in sort of a contest with the British and the Japanese. And pretty soon, if it keeps going at the same pace, the United States is going to have the biggest navy in the world. So there's this disarmament conference with everyone but the USSR. Don't forget, the United States takes a really freaking long time to recognize the Soviet Union. Um, Hughes, who's the Secretary of State, basically says to the whole conference, stop building ships, tear down everything you're making. And they come to this conclusion that the... British and the Americans should have five ships for every three the Japanese have. So it's five to five to three. 
Um, which the book, I think, says, like, Rolls-Royce, Bentley, Ford, which I think Kia would be the appropriate, um, metaphor in that instance. Anyways, um, in, this is the five-power naval treaty, I believe. Um, yes, the five-power naval treaty, the United States gets that ratio in in sort of, as a gimme to the Japanese, they will stay out of the Far East and let the Japanese basically do whatever. Um, Hardingites are very happy with this, um, and they think it's a very good development. But there's also this problem where you sort of have small ships and subs and cruisers being built in other countries, and the United States is just not doing that. So there's a bunch of numbered treaties. There's like a five-power treaty and a four-power treaty. Um, so And there's a nine-power treaty. The nine-power treaty basically says, let's maintain the status quo in Asia, and nail open the door in China, which is the pained and strained metaphor they've been using for it. Um, Congress says just because um, we have a five-power treaty and a nine-power treaty um, doesn't mean that we can't have more treaties, is basically what the book says and what I am repeating back to you. So the other four powers... um, or not the other four powers, but the four-power treaty then comes into place, which is the British, the Americans, the French, and the Japanese basically say, let's preserve the status quo in Asia. We will not have any military action in there whatsoever. The United States does not put any military backbone to this. Um, They don't say, like, anything to say, here's how we're going to guarantee we stay out of East Asia and Asia in general. Um... Then the world stupidly gets together and say, let's outlaw war. Not stupidly because outlawing war is a bad idea, but stupidly because it's impossible in a time like that. But, you know, if we outlaw war, we can help each other. So Coolidge's Secretary of State, Frank Kellogg, not to be confused with Frosted Flakes, puts together the Kellogg-Bryan Pact, which is 62 nations saying we're going to have no war but defensive war. Now let's think, can any war be spun spun as a defensive war? The answer is assuredly yes. Moving back domestically, um, which is where we're going to live for a couple of chapters here, there is not a lot of realism with their economic policy, with the United States' economic policy for the rest of the world. Um, They think the best way to make their economy strong is to keep the rest of the world out with these obscene tariffs. Excuse me. (laughs) Um, There's also all these super cheap uh, European goods. Um, So... The Ford and McCumber tariff law um, puts the tariff at 38.5%. Duties on farm produce produce go way up to equalize the cost of productions. Um, The ability for the president to raise or lower the rate of the tariff, and this is big, is instilled in there for the first time. So the president can raise it or lower it by 50%. Harding and Coolidge do it. 32 times so pig iron and dairy and chemical products are all raised um and there's five non really non-common reductions um the europeans can't sell anything to the americans um and they feel the squeeze and chaos starts raining and if they can't sell to the united states then they can't pay off their debt and what the united states is not grasping at this time as in their early reign as a world power trade is a two-way street you got to trade both ways so both nations can benefit um so the europeans then go and raise their tariffs because that's the only move they can really make in response um both sides goods are hurt 
and economic distress really reigns in Europe, as it soon will in America, and you can tie a direct line to Hitler, Mussolini, etc. at all. Um, in 1923, uh, C.R. Forbes, um, who is, I believe, someone, he is, yeah, it doesn't even say who he is, um, oh, he's the head of the Veterans Bureau, he takes money, um, illegally, and he has to resign as the head of the Veterans Bureau, as it says later in my notes, PVAC All-Star Intellect Strikes Again, um, According to the book, and I don't, it's probably 200,000, um, 200 million seems like a lot of money, especially then, but he took a significant amount of money, um, in a multiple of 200 <laughs> that was earmarked for hospitals, and he took it for himself. Um, the prevailing scandal of the Harding years was the Teapot Dome scandal. Um, there's this oil earmarked for the Navy in Wyoming and California, and in 1921, the Secretary of the Interior, whose last name is Fall, um, gets the Secretary of the Navy to give it to the Interior's jurisdiction. And Fall then leases the land for about $400,000. See, that's like what tipped me off on the on the $200,000 thing. Um, and he is bribed to lease the land to certain oil companies. Um, the details come out in March of 1923. Fall and then these two guys, Sinclair and Donny, Donny, who are oilmen, are indicted. Um, neither of them, none of them really spend much time in jail, um, but the prestige of the Harding administration goes down, the faith in the courts goes down, and this prevailing ideology of you are guilty in America until you are proven rich is sort of the quippy line of the time. The Senate then starts investigating the Attorney General for selling pardons and liquor permits. Don't forget, Prohibition is still in here. The book does really weird things with Prohibition. You completely forget it's happening. I think it would have been better to sort of you sort of forget it's happening because they talk about it at the beginning and they talk about it at the end, but they don't talk about it while it's happening. Um, that's my rant about American pageant, guys. Thanks for listening. End of podcast. Um, anyways, the AG is being investigated. He doesn't go to jail because he implies that there's a scandal that goes all the way to the top. They don't get to find out because Harding frickin' dies on a speech-making tour, um, which is a little out of control, in my opinion. I think that's pretty, that's pretty great. Um... Moving on to bombers, um, and also the death of Harding, apparently. <laughs> um, when Harding dies, uh, Calvin Coolidge, who is a quiet New Englander, shouts out to Belmont, Massachusetts, takes the oath of office. He's boring, he's mediocre, he's pro-business, he's pro-tax cuts, um, and pro-debt reduction, but something he is that Harding was not, he is honest. So, completely shifting gears to farms as the front of this card. Oh, Cal isn't... Okay. The front of the card's a Cal slash farmers. Um, I thought Cal referred to California. It referred to Calvin Coolidge. Should have thought of that. Um, farmers are in sort of a boom-bust cycle where the wheat industry was really rolling in the war and then the demand went way down and the machines came in to make things way more efficient and the prices go way way down as the market is oversaturated. One in four farms are sold uh, for debt or tax. Um, the farm block in Congress uh, from sort of agricultural states get the Capper-Volstead Act, which basically says uh, farm farmers co-ops are not uh, in the jurisdiction of any antitrust act. And the McNary, McNarg, uh, 
Isabel, if you're listening to this, yes, I can't read my own handwriting. Really shocking event. I know who can possibly believe it. It doesn't let you pause the recording anymore. Um, which is McNary Hoggin Bill. Okay, see, that's just a difficult last name. Anyways, that bill allows the government to buy up surplus uh, produce and to keep the prices artificially high. The farms pay a tax on it. Coolidge vetoes it. We'll see something like that in the future. Um, one of the driving forces of this, I said, more machines. That's really gas tractors and better fertilizer covering larger areas and creating more crops. So, election of 1924. Um, the Republican Party renominates uh, Calvin Coolidge in Cleveland. The Democrats have a contested convention. It's sort of this urban versus farming and this wet versus dry conundrum. They can't really make a decision on anything. Sounds nothing like the modern Democratic Party. Um, they also refuse to condemn the KKK, which is never a good look, I would say. They have 102 ballots. They eventually settle on John W. Davis, who is a conservative from Wall Street and a lawyer. Uh, Robert LaFollette, who's a senator from Wisconsin, runs as a progressive, which is this amalgamation of the Socialist Party and the American Federation of Labor and Farmers. He's the only truly presidential candidate, even though he does not come near winning. Um, calls for more government involvement, especially in railroads and farm relief and anti-monopoly acts and pro-labor. He is a liberal voice in this time of sort of everything's going really well. He's saying, let's change everything. And he sort of sees ahead of like, maybe it's good now, but what if it isn't good later? And everyone's like, impossible. It's going to be good forever. Um, he also wanted the Supreme Court to be enabled to invalidate congressionally passed law, which is something that we will hear a lot about in three or four chapters. Um, five million votes are cast for La Follette. Um, Calvin Coolidge gets 15 million and 382 electoral votes. Davis gets $8 million and $8 million, 8 million votes and 136 electoral. The times are just too good for reform, um, whether you're a progressive or a Democrat, which is, makes sense. It makes sense. Um, let's see. Foreign policy floundering back across the ocean. Calvin Coolidge, uh, believes in isolation, um, he does want a League of Nations, the League of Nations to hold a world court, and he wants disarmament to be in the national and international conversation, and he fails miserably at both. Um, he continues the prevailing policy of the 1910s and 20s to mess with the Caribbean and Latin American nations. Uh, he takes the troops out of DR, the DR, the Dominican Republic. Uh, they do stay in Haiti, and there's a short lapse in, in uh, occupation in Nicaragua where they leave and then quickly come back. Um, oil companies are saying to Coolidge, go to Mexico, take their oil, and come back with their oil. Coolidge says no, finds a way to piss off the Mexicans anyways. Um, generally, the United States um, has a lot of international debt accredited to them, um, and they've also made a lot of private loans. Um... And Germany owes them a lot of reparations, so the United States has become this creditor nation to the tune of $16 billion, um, and the dollar is now rivaling the pound, because that is how currency tends to work. Um, they have spent $10 billion in helping their allies recover, um, but the world economy is still struggling because most American money is staying in the U.S. The British and the French sort of say to the Americans, we already paid in men, and what we've spent on United States munitions and business and the tariffs, so let's just write it off as a war cost. Come on, guys. Um, 
And the U.S. still wants their money back, so the Allies say, okay, Germany, time to pay up because you owe $32 billion in reparations. Um, and the French put troops in the Ruhr Valley in 1923. Berlin then inflates their currency to the point of anarchy, and chaos ensues. To which the world sort of says, okay, America, it's time to chill out. To which the United States responds, me please. Um, the Dawes plan is what everyone settles on, which is we will reschedule German reparations, and the United States can loan to the Germans, who will pay their debts off with the British and the French, who will then pay the Americans. And it'll all work perfectly because U.S. credit is infallible. Um, Hoover uh, eventually will put a one-year moratorium on all this in 1931, and everyone but Finland will default on their debt. Honest little Finland makes it through. Um, in the meantime, anti-United States sentiment in Europe goes up, and neutrality, which works against Americans really, uh, also goes is on the rise in Europe. Uh, Coolidge says he is done after 1928. Uh, so Hoover, who's the Secretary of Commerce, unpopular with the bosses, popular with the people, um, runs on the platform of, hey, everything's really good. The Democrats nominate Al Smith of New York, FDR's uh, mentor in a lot of ways. Um, alcoholic, funny, urban, Catholic, uh, the Democrats don't really like him, especially the Southern Democrats who stay home in this election. They give him a bad um, running mate and a bad platform. Also, radio really factors into the election for the first time. Hoover's helped because he doesn't have an accent. Sounds like a quintessential American. Um, Smith has an accent and is very personal in his speaking. Um, Hoover, who's this Christian and has this great sob orphan story, um, works in efficiency and is an isolationist and is not really a very normal politician. He's shy and he's stiff and he's bad at campaigning. He's never been actually elected to public office. He's got the very thick skin, though. Um, pro-facts, pro-integrity. Um, he's a humanitarian, self-made, anti-socialist millionaire. Uh, he's got some progressive and pro-labor stuff, like he wants to establish a national radio station like the British BBC. Um, he hits Smith above the belt on policy and below the belt on calling him out on a Catholic. Um, and to Hoover, he is the ideal candidate for a Ku Klux Klan 100% American, because um, Smith is not a real American. So it's 27 to 15 million, 444 to 87. The Republicans take... The House of Representatives and carry the Confederate States, which, mind you, is a big deal, um, given the fact that it has not even been a century since um, the Republican Party was what split the Confederates from the Americans, from the Union, the Americans. Um, market's still on a crazy bubble high, um, and unorganized labor and farmers are not getting their dues. Um, so one thing that's established is the Agricultural Marketing Act, which is helping farmers help themselves. Another thing is the Federal Farm Board, which is about a billion dollars into producers' co-ops, um, and it stabilizes the grain and cotton industries, and it buys up surpluses. Uh, then they buy too much, or maybe they don't buy not enough. I don't know. Either way, the price is going down. Um, they do need the tariff to preserve farms, at least if you're Hoover, that's what you're saying. So Hoover calls a special session pretty quickly to change the tariff, and in comes the Holly Smoot tariff, which is the higher, highest protective tariff ever. It's a 60% duty. Foreigners see this as economic warfare and as expanding the trade gap and as forcing Europe further into a depression and as um, American isolationism, uh, which they're not happy with, per se.
So, um, everyone but the farms are doing great. Uh, stocks are going up and up and up on the bubble. Nothing's going to happen. And then the stock bubble bursts. This is where I would put a little Pac-Man dying noise if I had access to it in this instance. Um, the British, this is how it was triggered. The British raised their interest rates to get American money back. Um, then comes Black Tuesday when everyone realizes, hey, we don't actually have this money. Everyone starts selling everything. Um, the value of stocks go down by the billions, 40 of them to be exact. Doom and gloom sets in, 5,000 banks collapse, people lose their life savings, people lose their homes, their bread lines, apple carts, fathers and breadwinners feel guilt, they blame themselves, there are many fewer babies. I'm so sad that I have to cough. <coughs> it doesn't let you pause anymore, it's really annoying. Maybe I need a new app. If anyone has any podcasting app suggestions, I will take them. Um, basically, the way this all happened was an overabundance of goods, especially in farms and factories, really outran the American ability to pay and consume that stuff. There was a lot of money, but it wasn't going to many people, so no one can buy anything. Um, there are also these installment plans, so everyone buys things on credit, um, people are losing employment due to technology. Europe is in a mode of struggling, too, because they haven't really recovered from World War I. Vienna Bank collapses in 1931. International trade almost collapses. Um, really, tariffs were just, um, something that no one could have possibly foreseen, but something that really screwed everyone over. Um... Almost everyone defaults on their loans to the Americans, and anti-American sentiment goes way up. There's also a drought in the Southeast, really the worst timing possible. Um, farms are put up for auction, mainly for tax. Some neighbors uh, buy their neighbors' farms, because um, they're good neighbors. Um, other people move to renting or become tenants. There is no work, no one has a job, and these Hoovervilles, which are little basically tent cities um, where people are very unhappy with Herbert Hoover per se all pop up alright three, four more cards here we go, I'm going to cough again because this is just my life now <coughs> just claim where that pushing the A is not for you, it's for me um, reputation of Hoover goes way down it's not really his fault but he was an optimist in bad times, he was an individualist so that meant no handouts, so he helps the railroads and the banks and Europe and agricultural organizations, not Americans and farmers and farms. He thinks that it'll all trickle down. Maybe it does. It doesn't work, though, uh, in the short term. So it paves the way for the New Deal. Helps a few, but everyone's asking, why are you not helping the actual people at the bottom? So Hoover eventually steps up, says, fine. He gives $2.25 billion for public works, including the Hoover Dam, not self-referential. Says no socialist scheme, so. Um, the Musdy Shoals Bill um, dams the Tennessee River, and it's vetoed. I am just coughing all over the place right now. Um, it's vetoed. In 1932, the Reconstruction Finance Corporation Corp. Corp doesn't seem like the right word here. Hold on. It doesn't let you pause. Please let me pause. I beg you. Um, 
Reconstruction Finance, yeah, corporation is established. Uh, they give uh, $500 million um, to the banks for trickle-down, and they also give it to state government. Um, they do give some help to labor, so the Norris LaGuardia Anti-Injunction Act passes, which means no yellow dog contracts, uh, no injunctions on pickets. Hoover overall abandons his let's wait it out and see what happens strategy, and he starts trying to help the individual. It's helpful. It's too late. Um, and the government and the corporations are look like they're profiting. Um, the Republican Congress doesn't even want to cooperate. The Democrats then take Congress, and then they say to Hoover, no, we're not going to help you. You're, you're Hoover. You, you let this all happen. Okay, two more things. Um, moving way in a different sphere, the World War One veterans are really hard hit by the Depression, and so they say, pay us the bonus you promised in advance. Uh, so the bonus expeditionary force sends about 20,000 men to D.C., instead of a huge Hooverville on the National Mall. Um, when the bonus bill fails, they have these huge riots, the army evacuates them, uh, General MacArthur tear gasses some people, a baby dies, a lot of people get injured. Uh, the public really hates Hoover at this point. Uh, the Democrats employ some smear artists, call the Depression the Hoover Depression. Um, shifting gears again, in September 1931, um, Japan, while the West is distracted, takes Manchuria, um... The United States is more tied to Japan than they are to China, but they don't like the act of aggression because it violates almost everything. The League of Nations says, hey, what if the United States leads a blockade? Um, the United States um, is not part of the League of Nations, so they can't do that, nor can they put any sanctions on it, um, on it being Japan, and they also can't recognize the acquisition or they, they don't recognize the acquisition. That's all they do. So Japan goes on. They bomb Shanghai. The United States boycotts Japanese goods as if that'll good do any good. Uh, no one wants war, but the United States is missing from the League of Nations, so no one thinks that they can be stopped, basically. Um, under Hoover, also a little interesting nugget is that Southern and Northern American relations will go way up. Hoover takes his tour of Latin America. Because of the Depression, there's less money to invest in Latin America, so there's less economic imperialism. Hoover says we're not going to intervene anymore. They leave Haiti in 1934, Nicaragua in 1933, and they establish this idea of a good neighbor policy. And that is the most cough-filled episode of Pushing the Ed Media All Time. I should have had a glass of water. Alas, and lack a day, I do not. Okay as I put my cards into their crinkly plastic bag. Uh, chapter 31, you start in the 1920s, economy's really good, Harding's a crook, but then he dies before we know why. Coolidge shakes over, is pretty unnoticeable, huge, huge tariff passed, and huge, huge economic collapse. Um, Hoover tries to fix it, does all the wrong things at all the wrong times, but... On the bright side, South America kind of likes him, and the Japanese are invading China. I'll be back either... Nah, it's 11.56. I'll be back tomorrow with 32.33 of Pushing the A. Tuesday. We'll see how much we can get done. I'm not loving the odds of getting a full chapter or a full period review in there, but we'll see what I can get done. Uh, until then, it is a departure here. I'm Pushing the A.